The Talking Point with Kathy Motlatana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. All right, firstly, what I need to do now is apologize to our guests because we've started this conversation a little late because of Municipal Watch and the the issues that we were trying to address there. Um, let me welcome into studio Professor Noor Niftahuddin, who is the head of the History Workshop at Wits University. We're going to be talking about the South African Council on Sports and the work that that particular organization did in the fight against apartheid. Prof Niftahuddin. Good morning to you. Thanks for your time this morning. Good morning, Cathy, and uh, thanks very much for the opportunity. Rosalie Manning member is a member of the South African Council on Sport uh, that would have been marking 50 years this year. Rosalie, good morning. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cathy, and thanks for having me. The one thing I always uh, sort of say, especially um, on the show, is that we, of course, have a different mix of listeners. So there'll be some people who, when I talk about the South African Council of Sport, are able to it at a certain point in time. Mm. And of course, there's a whole other generation of young people who will say, well, what is this? What 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 did this particular organization do? Um, and that's where I'd like us to start, perhaps with a bit of the historical context of the work of this organization. Rosalie, I'm going to give you first tips on this one, especially as somebody who is a member of the organization, to, to tell us more about the, the work that it was involved with. Thank you, Kathy. So um, South African Council on Sport, or SACOS as we all knew it as, um, was what we called the um, sports wing of the liberation struggle. Um, It organized sport at grassroots. Um, It was a volunteer organization run by largely volunteers. Um, We had any number of codes of sport. Um, I started to play sport when I was nine years old. And um, I played women's hockey. So if you ever want to know about girls with good legs, it's the hockey girls. And so um, we played all codes of sport. Um, It started with junior hockey, senior hockey. And on an annual basis, despite the fact that we didn't get any sponsorship or resources, uh, we had an annual tournament. Of course, we um, had different codes. So we had codes for winter, codes for summer. We had athletics. We had synchronized swimming. We had Jim Lestrada. Um, and all of these codes were organized at different levels. But I'm going to ask Noor because he's the history person. <laughs> Prof? Uh, uh, thanks very much, Cathy. Um, and I, I think it's really crucial um, that, um, uh, that, that, that uh, Rose kind of reflected very briefly on the community dimension. Uh, and the fact that uh, SACOS was regarded as the sport wing of the liberation movement. Now, of course, SACOS itself was formed in 1973. Uh, however, it uh, you know, came out of a movement, mainly from the 1950s, by communities across the country, but especially communities living in the main urban areas and often in what was called mixed locations. So if you take Johannesburg, for example, just down the road, in the city center, there was a place called a sports uh, a ground called Natalspreit. So not the one in Ekuruleni, the one in Johannesburg. And there were places like this across the country where black people living in these communities tried to play sport under conditions during which the, 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 the white government tried to impose segregation. So what one had for a long time, but particularly from the 1950s, was that people who were living in these communities and in the context of a growing anti-apartheid movement, 
began to organize, uh, you know, networks and movements, not only to organize sport in those communities, but also to mobilize sport against uh, the kind of racist sport by the apartheid government. And so one had from the 1950s into the 1960s organizations like SASA, South African Sports Association. Then in the 1960s, Sandrock, the South African you know, uh, organization on, uh, on, on, uh, on Olympics. And uh, the, at the center of these was always a profound understanding that one cannot separate sport from politics. Because what the apartheid government did was in fact to impose racial segregation force people to organize along racial lines. And the non-racial sport movement coming out of this from the 1950s worked very fundamentally against these attempts to segregate. When SACOS was established in 1973, it brought these different initiatives together on a national basis and did two fundamental things. The one Rose has spoken about, and that is in fact to organize non-racial sport, to bring people together against the enforced racial segregation by the, by the apartheid government. Secondly, it very actively mobilized in an anti-racist way uh, against the attempts by the apartheid government to the terms, I'll use the terms we use today, to whitewash sport. Okay? Uh, in, in a sense, they wanted to give the impression that South Africa was normal by organizing what was called multiracial sport and trying to send white teams with often with a token black person to go and play international sport. So SACOS was part of both a national and international campaign to isolate apartheid sport. And the iconic slogan of SACOS was no normal sport in an abnormal society. And this was absolutely key in order to mobilize uh, the, the, the sporting community in the struggle for liberation. Let me just end off with this introduction. It was a very, uh, a, it was an important coincidence that SACOS was formed in 1973 because there were two other things taking place. The first, this was a period in which black consciousness was the ascendant uh, uh, ideology of black liberation, starting with Sasso in the late 1960s, the BPC and so on. In 1973 as well, the independent trade union uh, began to emerge following the Durban strikes in 1973. So this moment of 1973, early 1970s, was a moment of the revival of mass movements in the struggle against apartheid. And sport was an important dimension. And SACOS was at the apex. It was the sports wing of the liberation movement. I think there's quite a bit there for us to unpack, uh, Professor Niftahuddin, as you've sort of really clearly outlined the context under which uh, SACOS was operating. We also have Rosalie Manning, who was a member of that particular council. I'm going to go to news. We continue with the conversation after this. Kathy Motlatana on SAFM. We continue our conversation reflecting on the work of the South African Council on Sport. And we've just heard sort of a very uh, good but short summary of the historical context of this particular organization. Rosalie, I want to come to you. Um, Prof. Niftahodin talks about how 
in many ways, Sakos represents the idea of sport being intertwined with politics, right? And that by mere fact of organization, where the sport was being organized, with who it was being organized, that was a political statement. As somebody who was a member, a nine-year-old girl, um, you know, coming up and being part of this organization, was there an innate awareness about that? Or were you just going with it because that's what children do? We love to play around. We love sport. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you get caught up in something, yes, that's bigger than you, but might not be completely aware of it. Um, thanks for the question, Kathy. So the truth of the matter is um, I come from a sporting family. Mm-hmm. So my brothers all played soccer. Um, my mom got us organized to play netball because she was determined that young girls were not going to sit at home and do nothing. And then we got involved with women's hockey. So the politics of sport was very much present in our home because there was one sports field um, that we all wanted to play on and all wanted to practice on. And so the power dynamics between men and women um, was very overt from a very early age. And the fact that there were no resources, um, fields were not marked for our codes. So if you wanted to um, play a game, you had to navigate with the local council and you then got the kind of discrimination and attitude of the local official who sat in the council hall, who had access to the resources. Um, They could stop your game from happening by simply not marking your field, not giving you nets. Um, Change rooms were never opened. They were just not available. I can still change clothes um, standing in a circle with somebody from my bottom right up. Um, That's because there just weren't any change rooms. And so the politics of it and the injustice of it is something we were aware of at a very early age because it was always a fight and a struggle just to get access to play. Um, So you had to navigate boys who were much bigger than you, who had the resources, who had access. And so that's, in fact, the first stage of conscientization was this awareness that there was an inequality Um, And so as a young person, you were just angry that the boys took your spot, that they didn't get off the field when we had agreed they would. So there was just that anger. And from that anger was a growth and an understanding of what the dynamics are. And so from I think when I was about 13, I had my first fight with the soccer league um, in terms of them not giving us the field. So from a very early age, uh, we went into their union meeting um, to tell the boys that actually this is not going to happen. And we went f- face to face, we stood foot to foot. And so that was a very big awareness that who has the power, who has access, who has control, and what are the tools available to us as women to actually mm. navigate that space. I'm, I'm listening to um, Rosalie speak, Prof, and and I'm thinking about where we are in South Africa today. So many of what she's described, just being a young person in a community, trying to get access into a certain space, particularly in the context of sport. Mm. So much of that reality is still alive for many South Africans today. We are under democratic dispensation. In what ways does it still remain political? Cathy, uh, it is profoundly political. Um, I think that The place to start is to recognize that when one looks at uh, poor black working class communities Mm -hmm. in urban and rural areas, or even more specifically at public schools where the vast majority of our students are at, 
there is no sport. Um, you don't even have sport uh, at schools. There are no facilities. So what is evident is that the inequalities uh, that are so manifest in every aspect of our society is manifest also very profoundly, very deeply in sport. There is an overemphasis in our country, as is the case elsewhere in the world, on elite professional sport. So we all bedazzled by what we see on television. We bemoan the fact correctly uh, that it is very difficult, still 30 years into democracy, for a black child, let's just take someone like Castor from the northern, uh, from Limpopo, a rural part of Limpopo, to make a mark, and we celebrate her. Uh, but she's an individual. Behind uh, Castor, next to Castor, are thousands of young girls, young boys, people who are, you know, intersect, uh, fluid, and so on, who won't have that opportunity because the facilities simply are not there. That is profoundly political. And it's a case not only in South Africa, but across the world. And what Sakos did uh, successfully with all sorts of difficulties, it mm -hmm. had many difficulties. As Rose said, it was based on the efforts of communities, the efforts of volunteers, of teachers in particular in primary schools and high schools. That is gone. Right? And it's largely gone because the emphasis in the de democratic era has been on professional sport. It's been on sporting spectacles, like the World Cup, mm -hmm. billions of rands being spent on stadiums and on the spectacles, always promising that there will be a trickle-down to the communities. But as is the case with our economy, the trickle-down very rarely happens. It seems to me that it is, the word is not easier, but perhaps, um, I'm struggling to find the right word to, to describe it now, so I'll stick with easy, but uh, just remember the fact that there is a better word that I could be using uh, to describe the point I'm trying to make, but that it was easier to organize against what was an inherently racist state. So you didn't have to argue about what was wrong with the system. For a democratic government, there is a reluctance, I think, to be seen to be organizing against a democratic government and yet you have a lot of the issues that remain how do we try and foster that same spirit of saying these are the issues that remain at community level for many communities you talk about how even in your home there were conversations around sport today on this very platform We'll have people that call in. There's simply no facilities for young people to do anything when they're done at school. They don't exist at a community. So at least there was a field you could fight over. Those fields simply do not exist in many communities that we talk about today. Where they have existed, they're in such a state of disrepair that it's, it's no good even referencing them. So how do we bring that back um, especially if we're saying that sport is so important for our country, for our communities, and for the political discourse and addressing the political issues that, that we face on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Kathy, I think the issue is just as with civil society, where we are seeing a failure 
of service delivery in our communities. Mm -hmm. And communities have for themselves decided we're going to fix things. Um, and we were talking about, is this the new model for South Africa? We, we have to navigate how we access resources where there's a mixed model, some of it which the state will provide, some of it which communities will provide. Um, and while there was a field, there's a story behind how the field came about. Mm -hmm. It was just a, it's mines dumps that nobody could live on. And so we decided we'd play sport on it. Wow. It's not like it, it mm -hmm. was set aside for that purpose. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're going to have to say is that if we're wanting to build a society that has some kind of social cohesion, some kind of purpose, then sport is an integral part of any kind of social cohesion, sports, arts, drama. And I think communities are going to have to, for themselves, say, what is it we want our community to look like? Uh, we can't rely on state institutions to assist us with dreaming what this place should be. And I think communities are going to have to come together for themselves and then decide what we want to do. And that's how we're going to fight for resources and make access possible. But there isn't, we've learned one of the problems with our new democratic dispensation, I think, is that we've learned a helplessness. There's a learned helplessness. We expect government to do everything for us, whereas before, we had agency ourselves, and I think communities have to fight to get that agency back mm -hmm. so that we can actually, for ourselves, sort out what it needs to look like. Do you think that the there is an association, prof, an, an automatic association around the link between sports and politics for many South Africans? Do you think that that exists? Because we are very politically active. Um, we see that in protests that takes that take place in this country. We see that in in civil society, not necessarily the the national organisations, but the, just the ways in which um, you have movements that are doing work in communities, representing the 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 interests of of, of certain communities. Yes, I, I think that we have a challenge. Um, I think that the awareness that Rose has spoken about so eloquently and that you've raised about the 70s and 80s, I mean, there was an awareness that we live in a, in a, in a, a segregated and oppressive system. The connection between politics and sport was far more obvious. It is less obvious now. Um, and, uh, and, and for all of those reasons, people have kind of retreated from uh, imagining sport differently, uh, of understanding um, that having a sports field and having sports at school is a public good it should be a right uh, and making those claims but of course what we have uh, is that there are so many problems um, that inevitably sport always gets pushed down it's like a luxury like it, it's people mm, nice appear, to have. it's a luxury but let us let us this a we, we can deal with the problem in many ways but mm -hmm. we think about young people in poor townships Young people, particularly young men and boys and, and, and girls, what are the choices that they have? There's no leisure, there's no recreation, there's no art, there's no sport. What do they do? Niaupe, to put it quite bluntly. Mm -hmm. okay. There are many other problems. There's gender-based violence, etc. that takes place. Now, we're not saying that sport will resolve all of those issues, but in the absence of those facilities, uh, the choices are, are quite stark for young people. And whilst we must have agency and people must mobilize around these things in the way that equal education has mobilized for facilities at schools, and what equal education has done is to try and keep government accountable 
So yes, we must have agency by civil society and communities, but must also hold government accountable because it is their responsibility to provide public services and to ensure that public schools are properly serviced, including having proper sporting facilities at, uh, at, at working-class schools. I want to talk about this colloquium, then, that is um, being hosted at Wits University. What is the purpose of this colloquium as we draw towards the end of our conversation? Rosalie? So the purpose of the colloquium is, um, as to, is twofold. First of to look back at what were the strengths and victories, and then I think most importantly is what do we take forward? What is the... What is the next step for us as a country? Um, it is very good to know your history, to know where you come from, what you stood for, um, but that needs to continue to be a platform for things to go further. Um, and so the conversations we're going to have is about what role sport would play in changing some of our narrative in our communities, in our discourse with each other. And for me, that is why I'm participating in the colloquia. Fantastic. <laughs> Prof? people that want to be part of it, what do they need to do briefly? Um, so the, uh, the colloquium is taking place at, uh, at Wits University in the Faculty of Humanities and the Graduate Seminar Center. People should just pitch up if they want to. It starts tomorrow and, uh, and, and, and on Saturday. And just to say that we, we've got a wonderful set of speakers, academics, scholars, but very importantly also people who participated and who built SACOS. We're very lucky that we're going to have one of the uh, long-standing presidents of SACOS, Frank van der Horst, who's quite old but is flying up especially from Cape Town to be with us. So there'll be a wonderful full set of conversations. It'll be robust because the, all histories are contested. Um, and so we're looking forward to a very exciting conversation. And I should say, as someone who's at the university, we're hoping that young people will especially not only learn about SACOS, but hopefully young people at universities will want to do research on SACOS and non-racial sport uh, right. in the way that it, it deserves. Professor Noor Niftahuddin, Head of the History Workshop at Wits University, and Rosalie Manning, Member of the South African Council on Sport, um, marking then what would have been the 50th year of this organization. Let me thank you both for your time in studio this morning.